0: thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. We are here in Barcelona,
1: speaking with Isuki Breton, and thanks for listening to episode 167 of Impact Boom. My name is Nicole Arns, founder of Nick Nick and a contributor editor here at Impact Boom. I'm passionate about bringing you the latest insights to help you create social impact. Today we're speaking with Dr. Iski Britton, who resonates a lot with the previous slogan we had here on Impact Boom. You are not a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in a drop, called by Rumi. Dr. Iski Britton is a social ecologist with a PhD in environment and society. Her work explores a relationship between people and nature, especially water environments. As a research scientist at the National University of Ireland, Galway, she contributes her expertise in blue space, health and social well-being on national and international research projects, including the EU-funded Horizon 2020 project on seas, oceans and public health in Europe, Sophie. A lifelong surfer, her parents taught her to surf when she was four years old and she channels her passion for surfing and the sea into social change. Her work is deeply influenced by the ocean, and the lessons learned pioneering women's big big wave surfing in Ireland and introducing the sport of surfing with women in Iran. would led her to be invited to give an inspiring TEDx talk, Just at Surf. Passionate about facilitating creative and collaborative processes, she designs and delivers global leadership events specializing in experimental learning, Nature connection and social impact, including the annual Wavemaker retreat. On today's podcast, we'll discuss Iski's adventures between surfing and research. We'll get Iski's valuable advice about overcoming challenges, motivating people, and fostering collectives. We'll also hear Iski's view on the role of science in relation to social change. Iski, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks. We <I> can free <laughs> some time when you are here in Barcelona for the Fixing the Future Festival. To start things off, could you please share a bit about your background and what led you from surfing to getting a PhD? Ah, uh, <laughs>
2: it's not a short story. Um, Yeah, well, what led me into the sea and surfing, we'll start there, was, I guess, my place of birth. I had the good fortune of being born on the northwest coast of Ireland, in Donegal, um, just minutes from the beach. Although most people, I suppose, don't really associate at least not then, (laughs) Ireland was being a surfing destination. But I was also born into one of the pioneering surfing families in Ireland. Both my parents surf, and my dad and his brothers were kind of some of the first surfers in in the northwest to start the sport in the country. And then even my grandparents were quite influential in helping set up the first surf club, and the longest-running surfing event that we still have to this day. been going for, I think, over 50 years. (laughs) So it was really part of my heritage, this connection with the sea and growing up with that, what just felt like a normal part of our life. So I had to, you know, when you're that connected to something like surfing, you're completely kind of, I suppose I was going to say at the mercy, but yeah, you're completely at the mercy of what the elements are doing, the weather patterns the sea because it's always changing. So there was that lovely kind of early kind of lessons in fluidity and how to adapt to changing environments and like all these things now that I can see play out in my, my whole life path. But really initially, it was just that simple kind of joy. It was a place to really play. <laughs> so yeah, the sea became my playground. I learned to surf when I was about four years old, or at least that's when I first stood up on a surfboard, I think. Uh, But I've been in the sea for longer than I can remember Um, and just always felt really at home there. Um, And I think it's, yeah, it's just that real strong sense of belonging and and that's the place where I'm able to be fully who I am. And it's interesting then when I follow this. Path and surfer, as you say, mm-hmm. <laughs> to PhD. I know
1: it's quite sure. a stretch. One
2: way, but then it seems completely natural to me because the influence of the sea was so strong. It's, um, you know, and it's kind of where I go to feel most alive. It's where I got my inspiration from. It's where I de stress. It's where I es- escape. It's, um, but it's, it's also where I learn an awful lot about what's going on in the world around us. And so it's really also fed that sense of curiosity, um, in particular for the natural world and our connection with the environment around us. And mm-hmm. so that sensitivity um, was very powerful for me early on because I had that exposure as a child, which was, I'm so grateful for. Um, and then that kind of sea obsession, it becomes like an addiction, <laughs> uh, has followed me throughout my life. And, and then I think because you're really immersed in an environment in particular like the sea, and over the course of my life, you become more aware of changes and impact. And and so when we talk about things now that are in sort of the popular media um, and getting a lot of attention around marine pollution and ocean plastics, and um, you're kind of at the, the, you know, the forefront of witnessing that if you're in it every day and you're completely aware of how personally affected we are by changes in the marine environment so picking up things like different infections or illnesses from water pollution and experiencing uh, beaches having to be closed and competitions cancelled because of you know sewage outbreaks or things like this Um, so I I guess doing the PhD was really deepening that desire to want to better understand those interactions and the relationship we have with the sea and our health in particular and so it just kind of yeah I, I started I think like most things in my life I tend not to be I tend not to stay at the surface for very long I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper so for better or worse I ended up going all the way down into <laughs> the dark hole I can't be doing a PhD sometimes
1: mean to the surface you I suppose you are surface. on the surface
2: so yeah sometimes they often get tossed around as well yeah true um but it's something about finding where the yeah the edge of my knowledge is or my skills or I feel like the ocean is a great place to test that because it's always you never really get a handle on it because it's always changing and it'll surprise you in an instant <laughs> What was the thesis of your PhD? Yeah, I went. So, the sto- I guess more of the story is that I, you know, when I finished school, um, I was surfing all through my, my teenage years and competing and on the AeroSurf team. I finished school, I was 17, and I decided to really kind of focus my energy on creating a career around professional surfing. Um, but at the same time, I kind of wove in wanting to get more, I suppose. Life experience on what I was interested in, which um, at the time in particular was around marine conservation, and so kind of using the ability to travel and compete in surfing as a vehicle to actually explore <laughs> um, these other interests um, so I did that for quite a few few years before I went to university um, and I studied environmental science um, and i've always kind of kept i've kept surfing competing and studying at the same time, and it's that's been challenging, but also I think uh, an important balance for me, to always have that passion feeding what I do in my work, it's kind of essential. And I didn't plan on doing a PhD, but like most things in my life, it wasn't like I had this real strategic vision or, you know, <laughs> steps to follow, that kind of, it just... Uh, be open to the unexpected, I think, Uh, in this case. I had a really lovely mentor and teacher, my lecturer, Sarah Coulthard at the University of Ulster, when I was doing environmental science. Her work looks at that relationship between people in the sea, uh, particular coastal communities, and how our sense of, I suppose, well-being is affected when we lose that connection. Mm -hmm. And so she was writing up this, PhD at the time looking at that like the social wellbeing impacts in fishing communities in Northern Ireland because there were a lot of fisheries were being you know reduced decommissioned or closed down and up until that point the impact is only and still largely is only considered in economic terms and economically speaking you know the fishing fleet is seen as real you know like a drop in the ocean <laughs> and and yet it's very powerfully part of the fabric and of communities identity and so in my research you found that a lot of the the consequences in terms of that kind of sense of community cohesion family relationships sense of self-worth and mental health were really impacted Um, and it was kind of a real hidden sort of hidden impact I suppose of losing that connection
1: yeah, and It's also like everybody always trying to measure uh, yeah. impact, which is now like a trend. <laughs> well, we were trying to measure the
2: well-being Absolutely. impacts. Yeah. The science and studies yeah. have yeah. the possibility to really show these
1: results. Yeah, uh, yeah. it stays in
2: the economic, uh, yeah, economic and, it, curve, right? and I suppose just talking to you now and what I'll be talking about later, you know, are at fixing the future, Um, is something about, you know, this capturing impact and the emphasis on measuring impact. And I see that in both for, you know, NGOs and organizations and then research and academia, um, but also the sort of equal or even more important part of the importance of those stories that bring that to life. So the work I did was very mixed in terms of it was very qualitative. But also trying to capture you know the measurement and create the data that would speak to policy with a you know impactful kind of graph, but if you didn't have the story to really back that up or bring that to life, then it doesn't really move people there's no emotional connection to it and it's I think you need both. Yeah, cool. That's a great insight. <laughs> This is what happens when you have these conversations.
1: (laughs) And what brings, me? actually you answered part of this question already. Do you see yourself more as a scientist or as a social entrepreneur? I, I thought this was
2: a really good question because I see myself more as a scientist, but I'm not even sure if I really see myself as a scientist either. But I see, I suppose, my attraction to science is that, again, how can we deepen our understanding? But I feel like the real power in science is how you translate that knowledge into action, like the application of it in in a, in a really grounded way. Um, so I really kind of see that link and bridge between science and social enterprise, science and activism, you know, science and art, (laughs) that's where um, the actual meaningful impact I think will happen and how we manage to translate that and I think there's still a lot of work to be done there.
1: Over the years you have created various creative platforms like Water and the Wavemaker Collective and Ocean Collective. Could you please tell us more about these? What is their purpose and where do you see these collectives in five years time for example?
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I guess tracking the emergence as well of these different initiatives that are in particularly looking at how, I suppose, what drives me is the desire to better understand how inextricably linked our health and well-being is with the health of the ocean and also that sense of how we might overcome that disconnect that we're experiencing in society in particular from our natural world That has all these knock-on consequences for, well, our own health, but also the health of the environment. And so I kind of think these initiatives and collectives are trying to break out of the traditional ways of thinking and doing um, and approaching these challenges and issues and recognising the need for collaboration across different sectors, across different disciplines. And I'll start with, with Like Water. It's, to be perfectly honest, it's like my own little kind of creative sandbox where I get to play with these ideas and inspirations or insights I get from the scientific work that I do and seeing wanting to play with how to apply that in a setting that actually, I suppose, the embodiment of how we bring to life the scientific understanding we're beginning to get about how the ocean influences us. and. How it has a positive impact on our well-being, and so like water became about as a way to how to creatively explore and create these experiences to help connect people directly in like in a really immersive way with the natural world around them, in particular with water, and especially like water. I suppose the focus is more with women to explore ways of connecting, I suppose, with our bodies through water because it's such an awakening <laughs> environment. But it's also really in the work that we've done at various workshops. And retreats including one last year called move like water it's just I find that it's a lovely space when you can create there's an interesting relationship we have with water and we're both really drawn and attracted to it as humans or you know since since human history began but there's also a fear and there's a danger associated with water that's very real uh, but it's, when you turn those spaces into I suppose a more safe space it's just incredible the transformation that can happen and this sense of being held comes up again and again as being really powerful, that water holds us. Even that alone is such a powerful, be it a metaphor, but to actually feel that in your body. So that's been really wonderful to play with that. And, and like water, I suppose the other purpose of it too is to start to tell those kind of stories about our relationship with ourselves, our bodies, water, each other. But the other side of it is, I created it as a way to just better facilitate collaboration and partnerships with other people who are doing pretty cool work in this. So, And that's how then Wavemaker Collective came about, which is this creative leadership retreat that I run in partnership with two friends of mine who also have their other amazing ocean related projects. <laughs> because we felt it was just really such a powerful learning medium for creative insight when we take ourselves out of our everyday environment which is typically indoors <laughs> out into nature and, and learning through being immersed in the sea and surf and our nature and combining that with different like tools that from design thinking and brainstorming and peer learning but we find it's just such a great facilitator of connection when you take people out of a little bit out of the comfort zone but yeah it's amazing how your guard just drops and the first exercise we do is this one we call wave play on the very first day and we so wave makers is aimed at different leaders uh, entrepreneurs social activists like a, a very diverse spectrum and some people surf, some people don't but it's really aimed at how to create more social impact in the work that you're doing. So you have this very diverse mix of people who don't know each other. It's it's a group of about 16. And with this wave play activity, it's amazing what happens. So it's essentially about jumping in the surf and body surfing. So no surfboard, no anything, just yourself and the waves. And it's just all about play, really. So it's just it's such a great leveler. You're going in doing what maybe you did as a kid, getting tossed around by waves, feeling that kind of energy move you. And this incredible connection and trust happens in, in the space of this this kind of hour that we spend in the water. Yeah, yeah, it's, great. yeah it's really, really fun. Uh, so that's, that's just a great way to, to address the other kind of issue that exists, I suppose, in the space when we're trying to create change and social impact is where a lot of people, especially who come to the wave makers, are kind of at the vanguard in what they do, let's say. And that's a really isolating kind of place to be. So it's just also a chance to create that support and connection so hence the collective part um, <laughs> and then a time as space just to sort of let go and be in nature as well and then ocean collective is founded by a friend and marine biologist Iana johnson in the state and it's really a, an amazing kind of collective actually largely a of female scientists <laughs> and experts in that ocean space. So it's a consultancy for ocean solutions, in a way, to help a whole diverse mix of organizations and businesses and social enterprises to better address the, these ocean challenges that we're facing. And there's a really lovely mix of skills and women. And, and a lot of us are doing our own powerful work in our own fields or areas, but it feels just really nice that we have this collective And that by coming together and kind of sharing the skill sets it's just a lot more powerful. It's just about opening up these yeah again creating these different spaces for and opportunities for collaboration wherever you can find them and create them (laughs) and so that's and that's kind of what really gives me that the energy encouragement I sometimes need if in the academic work I do can get really intense. (laughs) And sometimes you can kind of think, what's it all for? So these things really breathe life into that research work too. So you kind of get, adds more purpose.
1: Yeah, and you're not alone, you can find connection there.
2: So. Yeah, and increasing it's happening in research and academia, which I love, is this. There's a lot of talk about interdisciplinary research, but more and more over the last 10 years, I've seen that happen in reality. <laughs> and something like the Sophie project, on oceans and human health, and that whole emerging scientific discipline around ocean and human health, which is, I suppose, really trying to better understand and explore those links and interactions between human health and ocean health. But that's bringing together a really diverse mix of scientists, you know, people from medical and public health backgrounds and biotechnology and environmental psychology, behavioural change, and,
1: <laughs>
2: and marine science, obviously. Yeah,
1: that's great. I'd love to see these
2: Immersion. Yeah, it has its own challenges, but
1: <laughs> I <know it>. always. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, we we talked about this now as well. Like uh, since you begin working with communities, what mm. insights do you have about grassroots movements and how to best foster a community or collective to really make this change happen? So how do you foster these kind of collectives? How do you? Yeah,
2: I think that's what we're trying to discover and experiment with creating something like WaveMaker Collective and appreciate that's only on a very small scale and we have a it's a small retreat of just 16 people and that was kind of intentional because we really wanted to foster that connection but what's interesting over the course of the last three years that we've been doing it is seeing how that's there's this ripple effect and how beyond those kind of four or five days that we have the conversation continues the people start collaborating with each other on a whole mix of projects one really I suppose lovely story to come out of that and previous work I've done with women in Iran which you mentioned which is it's probably a whole other podcast there (laughs) so that was another big influencer in in recognizing again this power of the ocean to create connection if a safe space and enabling space is created because I also appreciate that there are so many issues with accessing these experiences that I'm talking about with with nature and the sea and the beach, and that we're just beginning to wake up to the fact that it's not open to everyone, and that our these experiences and our ability to access them are really determined by and shaped by you know our history, where we grew up, our our race, our ethnicity, or gender, <laughs> and that became very real to me in somewhere like Iran. So the you know the opportunities I had growing up in Ireland to have such a positive experience of myself in nature and in the sea is not available to everyone but if if we do create more of those spaces and opportunities cross-culturally in particular it's incredible what can happen so what we discovered there was the importance of of creating these positive experiences the impact on well-being in building confidence and trust connecting with our bodies and then another young woman came to the wave maker retreat last year um, martina and her friend amanda went on after that to set up Sea Sisters, an initiative in Sri Lanka. And Martina has done like a Master's as well, and, and I think one of the first Master's thesis to look at the role of surfing in women's empowerment in developing nations. And so she had been following my work in Iran, then she came to Wavemakers, and she took this initiative herself with the work she'd already been doing in Sri Lanka to create this program. And what I love about it is that it's about, uh, kind of reclaiming that ocean space as a, a safe space for women and girls uh, to create that sense of empowerment, and in particular, where there's been that trauma associated with the tsunami, loss of life, huge fear, and actually the overwhelming number of, of deaths uh, were women and girls because of their don't have access to basic water safety skills or knowledge. And so that has huge consequences. So it's just wonderful that they're opening up another space of possibility for women to discover themselves in new ways. So yeah, I highly recommend checking out Sea yeah, Sisters. It's, it's really beautiful. And they just they just set it up last year. Um, they were also instrumental in setting up the Aragon Bay Girls Surf Club. So it's the first female-run, female-only surf club in Sri Lanka. And it's been recognized by the governing body. And so it's amazing because it's, you know, traditionally the see in the beach is not in domain for women and girls and you know I'm aware too as a surfer when I was traveling to these places like Sri Lanka or Indonesia the freedom I had to go and and surf and have that opportunity as an outsider or tourist you know and it just wasn't the case for women and girls who are from there so it's wonderful to see these shifts happening
1: what do you feel is the role of science in relation to social and ecological change
2: it's kind of essential and this, I suppose a few things happening, there's this sense of urgency and I feel it more and more keenly uh, to act. And then we need to take action and it's like needing to work with what we already know to like get going. But at the same time, I don't think actions alone will create change if we don't also cultivate a need to, I suppose, listen more deeply, to reflect and reconnect with what it is that matters most. Otherwise, we'll be acting without an awareness of what it is we want to create, <laughs> which could be dangerous. So it's so really allowing for just the, for that space to reflect and allowing for new ways of noticing to emerge. So it's that being able to remain really present as well as focusing on the future and what needs doing. And so I think the, the role of science is to really help ground us in this sense of moving from a place of, of what we know and then being able to continue to reflect through asking those questions of why, what's this for? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. What
1: would you recommend for like social entrepreneurs that are listening, for example, like to get in touch more with life scientists or with uh, universities? Or
2: yeah, I think the need goes both ways. Um, we've just been talking about how in science there's such a need for better science communication, and there's some great examples of when those... Collaborations happen between science and social enterprise and with designers and with brand thinkers and, you know, and and all of that needs to happen a lot more. So I think, well, first for the importance of science and social enterprise, it's helping to add value and weight to the impact and providing the evidence base and tracking the change and asking the right questions so that we can understand what it's all for. And then the other way is that, well, there's so much rich knowledge, incredible findings, expertise, all kind of locked up in the science bubble, that we need to find better ways to to communicate and turn those into stories that help move people to, to act or that offer people yeah even simple ways to begin to engage with creating their own change so that it doesn't feel Mm -hmm. so overwhelming and for that then we need to also collaborate with the design thinkers and social entrepreneurs turn our the scientific evidence into a really cool impactful story as well
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, yeah
2: two stories in film and, and art and the visuals and and it's yeah they're so powerful because it's really hard to you know there's also that kind of overwhelmed with all the information we're bombarded with uh, in the world today. So it's how do you kind of <laughs> infiltrate that or break through?
1: And how do you believe the business side of these projects helps to make social impact? For example, which are your main collaborators and partners and how do you work with
2: Actually, there's a couple of examples. One um, I'm really excited about is with this amazing social enterprise called Protect Blue founded by Lindsay Hawken, who's actually um, a co-founder of Wavemaker Collective as well. And she's sort of an amazing kind of brand thinker, leadership coach. She's passionate about marine education and social change. But Protect Blue, what I love about it is that it's aimed at ocean advocates, the people doing the work to create change in the ocean Mm -hmm. space, but it doesn't focus on what the problems are in the ocean or what we need to be doing. She focuses on the people, so on the ocean advocates and how can, through her skill sets and knowledge, how can she better help serve them. So these things we've been talking about, like helping ocean advocates understand and build the skills to better communicate the impact of their work through, you know, everything from like web design and making videos. (laughs) She is running this 10-week online incubator program bringing in a whole creative mix, teachers and thinkers to deliver these different modules aimed at ocean advocates. And I'll be doing one on Blue Mind, which is that lovely kind of concept that Wallace J. Nichols kind of initiated, this marine biologist who wrote a book of the same name. Um, And it's linked to the research that we do. So it's kind of Blue Mind has become Blue Health and Blue Care and the importance of Blue Space. (laughs) So I feel like entering a Blue Era, (laughs) which is really cool. But yeah, Protect Blue is a great example there of one of the other things that they're working on is creating a program aimed at people who are experiencing PTSD. And the first program is focused, I suppose, with War Vets in the UK and with her partner in Protect Blue, Luke. And they wanted to design this experience through using the sea and water create this sort of like a sense of restoration and recovery uh, and healing. So we were both driven by recognizing the power of the ocean to heal. And I'll be collaborating there just to help with the whole design of that program and how to capture the impact and that that powerful change and transformation that happens. So but it'll be both through the, the storytelling, but also then looking at ways we might evidence that as well, to measure it without reducing the experience. <laughs> yes.
1: And creating the maximum possible positive impact can be challenging, as you know. But what is your take on motivating people in collectives to take action? How do you navigate through obstacles? It's like, what's your like piece of advice?
2: I'm finding increasingly that people... It's not for lack of motivation or energy. It comes back to that impulse to want to act, which is really great. But then there's the danger, and we see it again and again, of the sort of the biggest challenges leaders are facing when they come to something like Wavemaker Collective is how to balance and manage their own time and energy, how to not burn out. And so there's this sort of crisis of, I hate to use the word, self-care, but that's kind of what it comes down to, of this pouring so much energy and passion into how to better care for the planet or the world around us or other people, that then we're completely losing that connection of care with ourselves. (laughs) So it's how to do that kind of work, yeah, and and not burn out. And a lot of it is to do with the fact that we're living in a culture and society that really doesn't foster a a good relationship with with time. (laughs) And uh, We're in this always-on culture, as I call it. And so that leaves very little time to reflect, let alone act. And so we feel like we're, you know, busy running, putting out fires, not able to catch breath. And So that feels like a huge issue. But with the work I've been doing, especially the last few years, through what are the outcomes of connecting more and spending more time being in nature. And for me, it's been... Noticing that everything has its own rhythm and there's these natural rhythms or cycles and that we're really suppressing them in how we're working in the way we kind of structure our, our working lives and societies. And so by that, I mean this ebb and flow, like it's not healthy or natural to be always on. You also need to rest, recover and relax the work that we do. And I see it in particular in social enterprise and and social change work because there's often that need to really hustle and you're having to do it yourself and (laughs) resources are stretched. So this might sound like a bit of a luxury, what I'm saying, but it's to find ways. And I think in that way, learning from nature and these natural cycles, so there's everything, it has its rhythm. So from we have obviously the circadian rhythm with day and night, but then there's the lunar cycle. And all of it ebbs and flows and our energy ebbs and flows because we're natural beings (laughs) so far. Yeah, yeah, we're not computers. Uh, We're not, we are not our smartphones. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's, It's to really honor that and find, even if it's in a really, really small way. Yeah, I think that's super important. It's trying to shift from this sort of headlong push from A to B into a more cyclical approach to living. And that really giving ourselves permission to every now and again to step away, like completely drop your bundle and (laughs) not panic. The world will, you know, still be there, hopefully, when you come back to it. But you might not if you don't take the time to honour both the, the ebb part of our cycle as well as the flow, the waxing and the waning. And, you know, as a surfer, we're very aware of that, that you're timing things to, to move with the tide. Yeah. You know, the tide isn't, you know, luckily it's not constantly coming in at us. The good news, especially for women, <laughs> is that we have our own internal cycle. Uh, which has also suffered terrible suppression. We try to push through that. But if we could li- better listen to it, i.e. listen to that wisdom in our bodies, then I think that would help us access our power a lot more readily as well. And we'd be a lot less hard on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, That's great so. advice.
1: Not just for social enterprise, but in general. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Okay. <laughs> we talked already a little bit about like some examples of other projects that came out, especially of the collectives but do you have any other inspiring organizations or presidents that you would like to mention?
2: Oh, wow. Word start, Yeah. <laughs> there's so many. I mean, well, there's a couple that have just kind of come on my radar. So Ayana Johnson, founder of Ocean Collective, uh, has also just set up Urban Ocean Lab. And I love this because it's looking at urban ocean conservation. People so like, what? Like ocean conservation in cities or urban areas like there's no nature in urban areas Uh, but you know there's most of the world's largest cities are by the sea and so she's kind of initiated this work in New York City and it's a a really incredible thing and and that's an exciting shift to make because most of the world's populations are in urban areas and that's where the disconnect is, is greatest so if we could bring that mindset into those spaces I think the potential for impact could be huge. And along those lines, another initiative in the UK called We Are Ocean. Again, all about this, uh, how do we build more ocean literate societies, in particular in urban areas. So they're kind of activating that in a whole load of really creative ways. It's really, really engaging. And then there's another one that came to mind. There's a really beautiful, powerful initiative called I Am Water by a dear friend of mine, Hanley Prinslow. He's a- incredible freediver from South Africa. She's kind of taking her experiences and her tremendous passion for freediving and discovering this incredible world beneath the surface (laughs) as a way to address that issue of why we're not so connected with the ocean. Because for so many people it feels like it's out of sight, out of mind. And it's just this blue space. So Hanley really brings that to life along with her partner Peter Marshall. They Create these incredible like visual stories of what it's like beneath the surface. But I am Water is it's based in South Africa and they're spreading into other countries as well as a way to engage in particular vulnerable minority groups and the kids in South Africa who live you know right right next to the sea but have never been in the water and aren't even able to swim. And she introduces them to a whole other world to the rock pools and snorkeling and beach cleaning with freediving. It's amazing because you're connecting with your body and your breath. And you're experiencing immediately the transformation of what happens when you go in water and how that physically changes your body, alters your mind and your mood. And so she's kind of twofold. Her way of addressing, which very much resonates with me, addressing this kind of environmental crisis that we're in and ocean conservation is through how do you help people fall in love with the sea? So about that deep emotional connection. And if we can create more of that kind of connection, um, I feel we might be better able to (laughs) move ourselves to want to act. Fear is a powerful motivator too. um, And it's um, up to a point, you know, it's it's sort of to snap us out of that (laughs) apathy. I think, for example, Greta Thunberg's Climate Strikes um And her approach has really woken people up and I read an, an interview she did I think it was in time made that analogy. If your house is on fire it's not the time to sit down and plan how you'd like to like you know uh rebuild it that <laughs> you just need to you know take immediate action and save yourself and get out of the burning house but in when they were in crisis mode that's a powerful motivation, but I think for long-term change for me i feel like it's the other it's about that emotional connection and creating more love and empathy and care that's great and
1: to finish off what, what are some great books
2: that you can recommend? Oh, oh i'm book mad i lived as a kid in a world of books and i still do so it's like the books can't live without books or the sea <laughs> i'll suggest three um The one that I've read the most often and always return to would be The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. At whatever stage I'm at in my life and whatever page I open it at, it just seems to be just right for me. It's a beautiful kind of philosophy on life. The one I kind of shared or recommended the most has been Blue Mind by Wallace J. Nichols, um, which I already mentioned, because it's a great kind of, a lot of the, excitingly a lot of the research and science that he talks about in that has really kind of jumped ahead already and uh, it was published about five years ago but it's a really good foundation if you want to learn more about okay what is this human water connection that's a great place to start and then the third book in particular for all the women out there is called wild power by alexandra pope and Shani. Don't let the title put you (laughs) off, but it's, again, if you want to learn more about the power of our inner cycle, the menstrual cycle, uh, it's a brilliant foundational book on creating more of that kind of cycle awareness in your life Mm -hmm. and being able to sort of track and map and chart your own cycle. I, I just find it, yeah, really, really empowering, really practical. It's kind of blown my mind and I've since gone on to do more work with the authors of that book as well oh, so they're good. my top three right now
1: <laughs> yeah we'll check back on six months signal <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great thank you so much mm. thank you for all the insights that you, you share with
2: us. yeah i love having these conversations because you never really need the questions but you never really know where it's gonna go thank you
0: thanks for listening to impact boom